Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 25, quarter of 100, for the first quarter of March 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today is on the other kind of pole shift, the magnetic one. Last month, I did a two-episode series on geographic pole shifts, where the Earth's spin axis is significantly rotated or shifted or moved somehow, in some way, that I showed actually can't happen. I mentioned in the intro for that episode that the basic idea of a pole shift is not as basic as one may think. Earth actually has two different kinds of poles, a spin axis and a set of magnetic poles. Almost every time you hear someone talk about a pole shift happening in 2012, they do not actually specify. So you have to ask for clarifications or try to figure it out through context. But the two, the magnetic versus geographic, are very different things. In this episode, I'm going to focus on the other kind of pole shift, the magnetic pole shift. This is usually less frequently talked about, if that usually less frequently phrase makes any sense, than the geographic pole shift. But those who talk about it generally have the same dire predictions. To talk about this, I need to give some background information on Earth's magnetic field, returning to the format that I actually initially started this whole podcast series with, the claim, the background, and then the refutation. Earth has a magnetic field. I think most people know that, even with America's education system. This is often represented as a bar magnet superimposed roughly along the spin axis with north up and south down. If you have a really fancy diagram, then the bar magnet is going to be shifted by about 11 degrees. This kind of depiction, though, is fairly inaccurate. First, as discussed in the Puzzler of Episode 9, the magnetic pole near Earth's geographic north is actually a magnetic south pole, hence why north compass needles are attracted to it, and vice versa for the one near the geographic south pole. However, to make things hopefully clearer throughout this episode, that's the last mention of this. When I say north from here on out, I mean the magnetic pole near the north geographic pole. When I say south, I mean the one near the south geographic pole. It's just easier and less confusing that way, and I got halfway through writing the episode and realized that that's what I was doing. Second, field lines don't all connect at the magnetic north and south poles. They sort of dive into the Earth's surface, kind of sort of near the poles. I'll actually post a diagram of this on the episode's website, so hopefully it'll make a little more sense. Third, Earth's magnetic poles are not 180 degrees away from each other. The most recent positions that I could find were from 2005 for the North Pole, which put it at 82.7 degrees north, 114.4 degrees west, and the magnetic South Pole was at 64.5 degrees south, 137.7 degrees east in 2007. Those are not 180 degrees apart. Far from it. But on top of that, the overall field strength varies across the globe, including something called the South Atlantic Anomaly, where the field is particularly low and causes the Van Allen radiation belts to dip closer to the planet. The poles also move, and the fields change with time. 
Back in 2009, the North Magnetic Pole was booking it towards Russia from Greenland at a rate of about 55 to 60 kilometers per year. The South was moving northwest from somewhere in the middle of Antarctica at a more leisurely rate of 10 to 15 kilometers per year. That's just a discussion of the poles. The overall field strength has been changing since we started measuring it over a hundred years ago. The overall trend is that it's decreasing, having lost around 6% of its strength since 1900. Not that the change has been linear, the change has changed over time. If we go back a few hundred years, some of this stuff was known. This is perhaps most evidenced by ship captains needing to update their maps every few years with new magnetic pointings due to the shifting poles. If they didn't, they could be off by several kilometers, which is kind of important when you don't want to hit that reef that's coming up. In fact, we still have to do this kind of thing today. There was a story in the news about a year ago that I'll find and link to in the show notes for the episode, where an airport in Florida... Oh my gosh, shut down, and they had to repaint the magnetic lines on the runways. This was actually something that was touted on such paranormal shows as Coast to Coast, where they were like, this is evidence of a pole shift, 2012 is coming, ah! Not actually realizing that this is something that's been done for hundreds of years. Not necessarily with airport runways, but with this kind of thing. We've known the poles are moving. They move. Get over it. The point of all this background of the present-day magnetic field is to try to paint a picture of a dynamic magnetic field. It's not static. We know it changes, we know it moves, and we know that it's really complicated and we don't fully understand it. We also know that we may actually be approaching a magnetic pole reversal. Yes, I did effectively say that Earth may be in the mood for a magnetic pole flip. From time to time, Earth's magnetic field has effectively reversed direction, where the pole that is near the present-day North Geographic Pole goes to the south, and vice versa. This is a very, very poorly understood process, but the evidence that it's happened in the past is fairly clear when one looks at the alternating polarities of crust on either side of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. What I mean here is that when rock gets heated above a certain temperature, called the Curie Point after Marie Curie, a very famous double Nobel Prize winner, it will lose any magnetic field that's recorded in it. When it cools, it will take on the field that it cooled in. Since the Atlantic Ocean is spreading and we can date the rocks on the ocean floor, as well as determine their magnetic direction, we can create a map of magnetic reversals over about the last 150 million years or so, which is about the oldest that the Atlantic Ocean crust is. Going back further in time is a bit more complicated, but it can be done, and the picture that's been built up clearly shows many, many reversals through geologic time. And again, I'll link to that picture in the show notes. The actual rate at which the reversals happen has, by all accounts that I've read, been shown to be statistically random. There appears to be no pattern whatsoever in the lengths of how long the field stays where it is, the lengths of reversals themselves, the polarity in the lengths, nor the distribution of polarities. What this means is that anyone who says that we are quote-unquote due for a reversal is wrong. The idea that we're due for one comes from the fact that the 
average length of time that Earth has been at any particular polarity over, over the last few million years or so is shorter than the time since the last flip, which was around 780,000 years ago. So based on that average, we're quote-unquote due. But since the length of time is statistically random, an average is kind of somewhat meaningless. You can't really take a meaningful average of random data because it's, you know, random. The next logical question is probably what causes a flip before we get into what happens during and how long they take. Or at least that's the next logical question that came to my mind, which is the next logical question that I will answer. The cause of pole flips is fairly unknown, since the origin and the mechanics of Earth's magnetic field are also somewhat unknown. The best theory that we have is the magnetic dynamo one. This is based on two laws of physics, the Biot-Savart law, and I apologize to anyone who speaks French, and the Faraday induction law. The first, that I'm not going to pronounce again, we'll just abbreviate it as the BS law. No laughs, please. The BS law says that moving charges create a magnetic field. This is how electromagnets work. This is why you can run an electric charge through a sheet of metal and pick up a car. The second says that moving magnetic fields induce a current in a conductor, hence the induction law of Faraday. This is how a car's alternator works, and that's about all that I know about how cars work. So put the two together, and you have a perpetuating magnetic field, where the moving charge creates a magnetic field, and the magnetic field creates a moving charge. So long as we have a conductor, and we do because Earth's outer core is liquid nickel and iron, and it moves around due to Earth's rotation, we are going to get a magnet. Why the field actually flips seems to be inherent in the mechanism of the dynamo in an actual system, meaning that when people have actually tried to simulate the dynamo in a computer or doing an actual physical experiment, the field will become chaotic at times, tangling up due to the chaotic nature of the fluid in the outer core, or in whatever you're simulating it in. As it tangles and it tries to sort itself out again, it will reverse. It just kind of happens in the models, although I'm sure there's something more specific that an expert in this could clue me in on, since my rough estimates show that I have somewhere between 500 and 1,000 listeners, maybe someone could write in on that. My point at this stage, though, is that Earth's field does flip. This happens. We don't know exactly why, but the evidence that it does is about as conclusive as things get. The next question gets into what happens during a flip and how long does it take? After all, 2012 people say it's going to happen this year. So far in this episode, the 2012 people have been batting a thousand. Earth's field changes. It's changing now. The field strength is decreasing, and this may mean we're headed up to a magnetic pole shift. The problem for 2012ers is that's where their grip on the reality of the situation kind of stops. Magnetic pole flips don't happen in the sense that you can just go to bed one night and wake up in the morning and your compass needle is going to point the wrong way. Nor does it mean that in the middle of a pole flip our, quote, magnetic shield goes down, unquote, and the sun would irradiate the planet. If that were somehow the case, then we would see mass extinctions very well correlated with every, as in hundreds, of pole flips in the past, and there are none. Well, there are mass extinctions, but they're not at all correlated with magnetic pole reversals. To start off with, most estimates 
that I've seen say that it takes around 1,000 to 10,000 years for a pole shift to complete from start to finish. So we may possibly be in the beginning stages of one now because the field strength is decreasing. But we won't really know for another few hundred years. And during a pole shift, again, it's not like the field suddenly turns off rearranges itself for a millennium, and then turns back on in the other direction. During a flip, the field becomes very tangled, and you would have actually several north and several south poles emanating all around Earth. This would make compass navigation very complicated. Fortunately, we are in the satellite era. And it would likely drop the overall field strength to some fraction of its current, like maybe around 30% or so. Note that this is actually the opposite of how the magnetic reversals happen on the sun, where every 11-ish years or so, the field there increases during a reversal instead of decreases. So at this point in the episode, you're probably wondering where the crazy coast-to-coast AM clip is, or at least me reading of a wacky claim. But that's it. We're at the end of the main segment. Like many things in science, this is a situation where we really don't know nearly as much as we'd like to. So, write into your congressman, senator, PM, or whoever of choice, and advocate that they fund science. I can pretty much unequivocally state that the idea that the magnetic pole will suddenly flip on December 21st, 2012 is wrong, just as it's wrong that it'll flip any time this year or the next hundred years. The mechanism proposed which you really have to dig around for and apply much more to the wrong ideas of a geographic shift than a magnetic pole shift, don't really make sense. They include things like the sun's magnetic field will flip hours, it's another magical property of the magical cloaked planet X and its invisible tractor beam getting whopped by an asteroid, or other mystical powers somehow flip our magnetic poles. That's really about the best that the 2012ers have come up with. But, magnetic field is a complicated thing, and we really don't know why it flips. We don't really have a good understanding of what happens during a flip, and we don't really know if we're in the beginning stages of one that should be complete within about the next 10,000 years. So again, fund science. This week's question for Q&A comes from J.P., the initial P, a.k.a. Skeptic, P-S-C-H-E-P-T-Y-C-K, from the SGU message boards. This person, J, asks, Just finished listening to episode 23, and I was wondering, hypothetically speaking, if Planet X were real, and on a 3,600-year cycle, and roughly Earth-sized, and somehow didn't perturb the asteroid belt, wouldn't have to have a close enough proximity at some point to Jupiter? And if so, wouldn't it have already been pulled into Jupiter's gravitational field? Or do the planet Xers have it on some sort of trajectory that brings it close to Earth, but then somehow misses the rest of the solar system? Sorry for all the questions, but I do appreciate your time and the quality programming. Well, thanks, Jay, and that's the first time I think this has been referred to as quality programming. The short answer to your question is yes and yes. That wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, 
please use any of the feedback methods available, although the easiest is probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. Just kidding. The longer answer to Jay's question, or at least the first part, is that a normal object that is in roughly coplanar orbit with the rest of the solar system, meaning that it orbits in the same plane as most everything else, would, at some point, swing by Jupiter, unless it's on a very, very unlikely chance that it were somehow in some sort of resonance with Jupiter. What I mean by this is, for example, Pluto crosses Neptune's orbit twice during its year. But, because for every three times Neptune goes around the Sun, Pluto goes around twice, the two will never collide. They're in a resonance. So, unless on the very, very unlikely chance that Planet X were in some sort of resonance with Jupiter, the two would likely have met at some point in the last four and a half billion years of history, since Planet X would have crossed Jupiter's path over two million times in that period. Now, I'm not sure if it's to get around this issue, that they say this because I've never actually really seen much astronomy, realistic-based thinking from Planet X people, but they do have some proposed orbits that take Planet X from above or below the plane of the solar system, bring it close to Earth, so when it happens to cross the plane of the solar system, it crosses it right at Earth, and then goes back below or above, swings around the sun, crosses Earth again, and then heads back out. So, you know, that's kind of really convenient, and it's something that we like to call a special pleading argument. And in this case, it's a special pleading argument stamped on top of something that has zero evidence for its existence, but a lot of evidence that it doesn't exist. In terms of feedback, general to the show from iTunes, you know, considering that this is the third episode that I've written and recorded in the last ten days, I do feel a bit justified in going to the feel-good iTunes reviews. That should be a song, the feel-good iTunes reviews. Anyway, Martin in the U.S. iTunes store on February 22nd of this year stated, I discovered this podcast a couple of weeks ago and have listened to many on my way to work. I'm very impressed with the scope and the amount of detail, as well as Robin's humor. I think it's up there with Dr. Carl, Skeptoid, The Naked Scientists, Neil deGrasse Tyson's Star Talk, Radiolab, and Michio Kaku's Explorations. Thank you, Martin. It's nice to know that some people appreciate my sense of sort of dry humor. It would be better if that kind of comment were to come from a Canadian, given the latest round of comments on Facebook, but I'll take what I can get. It's also nice being favorably compared to some other um, significantly more prominent podcasts. I actually conceptually modeled the show after Skeptoid with a bit of astronomy cast thrown in, so that might be why you're among several other people who have compared me with Skeptoid. It's, it could be why. I also like the idea of short targeted topics that vary from episode to episode to try to keep it kind of mixed up and interesting. But I also like the idea of having actual feedback and more user interaction, which is why I have more segments than Skeptoid does. As to whether or not I'm naked when I'm recording, we're not going to get into that. Meanwhile, Barry Crow in the Canadian iTunes store on February 27th of this year wrote, this is a great podcast. Only wish it was longer or more often, but good work takes time. 
I always look forward to the debunking of a growing culture of bad astronomy. Yes, it takes time, and no, I can't call this bad astronomy. I'm sure most of you will know why. Now, I've addressed the length issue before, as well as the frequency issue. I'm still trying to do four episodes a month, which is twice as much as I initially promised way back in episode one that seems like eons ago. So, yeah, it's not going to increase in frequency anytime soon. And now it's time for The Puzzler, where each episode, or at least every other episode, I attempt to ask a critical thinking-based question loosely based upon the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario last time was this. First, if an object were on a 3,600-year orbit around the Sun, what would its semi-major axis be? Second, if the closest approach to the Sun were Earth, then what would its farthest distance be? And finally, if its closest approach were Earth, then about how much time would it spend inside the orbit of Jupiter? Congratulations goes to Chu, yet again from yesterday's message boards, for being the first to submit, in fact, the only person to submit an answer, period. And he happened to get it right. Um, I'm not sure if it really counts, though, because he had actually done this for something else a few weeks before, but since he was the only one to submit something, I'm going to go ahead and count it. The solution to the first part comes directly from Kepler's third law, which states that the semi-major axis and the period of a planet's orbit are related. Since I gave you the period, you can directly calculate the semi-major axis, which Chu did, at 234.9 Sun-Earth distances, which are known as astronomical units, or AUs for short. Chu actually used, for some reason, a 3,643-year orbit, or 3,643. I'm not quite sure why, but the number that he got is very close, at 236.8 AUs. The solution to the second part can be figured out just by drawing a picture. Draw an ellipse, and put the sun at one focus. Make sure that it's along the major axis. Just sort of stick it off to the side along the major axis. The long, or major axis, is two times the semi-major axis, which I just gave you the answer for, and so you can easily get the major axis to be about 470 AUs. I told you that the closest distance that it gets to the Sun is Earth's orbit, so the distance between the dot that you drew for the Sun and the edge of the ellipse on the major axis is 1. 470 minus 1 is 469 AUs. The third part is a bit more complicated. Well, it's actually a lot more complicated. Much more complicated than I initially thought. It boils down to our good friend Kepler again, who figured all of this out over 300 years ago, but it still took me about an hour to actually figure out how to use his math. You have to do things like use another one of Kepler's equations that isn't talked about very often, solving for things like mean anomalies, eccentric anomalies, true anomalies, and other stuff. I'm not going to bore you with the math. The value that I found is that it would spend roughly 2.2 Earth years within the orbit of Jupiter, meaning that if it's approaching or going to get here on December 21st, 2012, then right now it would be well within Jupiter's orbit, and it would be about the brightest thing in the sky other than the sun or the moon, possibly brighter than Venus which means that it would be visible during the day. It's not there. 
And yes, I do still have my math, so if any of you are for some reason gluttons for punishment, feel free to send me an email and I can send you the math in order to figure this out. Now for the puzzler this week, with the main segment on magnetic pole shifts, the puzzler deals with architecture. In other words, I couldn't think of something having to do with magnetic pole shifts and I got no suggestions, so I'm doing a puzzler based on last episode's topic on the sun and moon moving all wonky. Let's say that you are an architect, and you're in a reasonable part of the world that's poleward of the tropics. You're designing a patio for a client, and the client wants the sun on the patio from the autumnal equinox through the spring equinox. Because it's, you know, hot in, let's say, Florida, during the summer they don't want the sun to be directly on the patio. They want a roof or an awning to block the sun from the spring through the autumnal equinoxes. A typical patio in this perfectly nice residential area is about 4 meters on a side. That's roughly 12 feet for you American or Imperial unit users. And the awning or roof, we'll say, is 3 meters, or about 9 feet from the floor. The question is, how far should the roof extend from the poleward side to the edge of the patio? Make sure that you include latitude as a variable in your solution, and give me an example. So say, the answer is this, and latitude is a variable, but for example, if your latitude is 40 degrees, then this is how long your roof should be. Try to figure out the answer and send it into puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss it during the March 16th episode. And speaking of the March 16th episode, that's going to be on Stellar Scams, the naming of stars for the low, low price of $49.95 or owning land on exoplanets. If you have ideas for a puzzler related to this in any way, shape, or form, please send it in. By way of announcements, I don't really have any this week other than to remind you that I am now on Facebook and Twitter. Don't forget that you can find me, first of all, online at the podcast's website, podcast.sjrdesign.net, but now I'm also on Facebook under Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy. I'm personally on Twitter as Dr. Astro Stu, that's D-R-A-S-T-R-O-S-T-U, And the podcast is on Twitter as PseudoAstro, P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O. That wraps up this topic for the 25th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website. Send an email to podcast at podcast.sjrdesign.net, or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. I read every email, and I think I'm finally caught up with email feedback, which I do appreciate both the feedback and being caught up. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, please write a review and rate it on iTunes. Also tell your friends, family, shout it from the rooftops, and do anything else that you feel appropriate. 